0: Why are so many people talking about neuroplasticity in regards to fibromyalgia, ME, CFS, POTS and multiple chemical sensitivities and related syndromes? What is neuroplasticity? And what are the specific ways in which neuroplasticity can occur? How exactly does it work so that we can understand how to best affect positive neuroplasticity for better health?
1: So then are you saying that you don't think that the illness limits the ability to affect uh, the neuroplasticity in a positive way?
0: Well, on the contrary, I, I do think that, Okay. but I think we can narrow the focus, uh, the reasons for this in, in more detail. So what happens is that these two uh, neurotransmitters, they, um, they come together and they tag those specific brain areas that we're engaging for change but my understanding is that the change doesn't actually happen then you know claudia um i mean it's really always about the details and and sometimes the distinctions between what can be helpful and what can be unhelpful can be very very small (laughs) (laughs) right and so uh, I'm going to comment on this a little bit because it's easy for people to hear some of these things, draw conclusions from them and do things that could actually be very unhelpful. And it actually ch- causes physical changes in the brain. So it can actually uh, cause a reduction in the, in the gray matter in the brain globally. That's some of what we discuss in this episode, as well as central sensitization and how it applies to more than just pain. Welcome to Wisdom from the Other Side, a podcast about recovery from fibromyalgia, ME, CFS, POTS, multiple chemical sensitivities and related syndromes. I am Dan Neufer author of has Unraveled and the creator of the ANS Rewire Recovery Program. I've spoken with hundreds of people that have recovered from these illnesses, as well as doctors, researchers and many other healthcare specialists. And this podcast is here to share that knowledge, to inspire and support you, to empower you on your personal journey of recovery and to help you thrive just a short but important message regarding the content of this podcast the ideas concepts and opinions expressed in this recording website and associated media and products are intended to be used for educational and information purposes only nothing presented is intended to replace your physician nor are they a substitute for medical diagnosis advice or treatment This podcast is provided with the understanding that the authors, guests, speakers, and publishers are not rendering medical advice of any kind. Joining me again today is Claudia. Hi, Claudia.
1: Hi, Dan. I'm thrilled to be back.
0: Yeah, well, you were saying just before we started that it's pretty hot where you are, and uh, as you can see, I've got my sleeves rolled up, not just for tackling the the uh, big topic of neuroplasticity, but my air conditioner on the fritz.
1: So. Oh my gosh.
0: <laughs> so we'll both be sweating through this yeah. podcast.
1: <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's the perfect topic for that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, a lot of people are talking about neuroplasticity these days.
1: Yeah, it's a and, hot topic.
0: Um, yeah, so I felt it uh, was very important for us to... To address this, uh, and especially in the context of of ME/CFS and, and fibromyalgia.
1: So, yeah. So, why are we talking about neuroplasticity for these particular illnesses, anyway?
0: Well, neuroplasticity is really all about how the brain can change. Now, in in pots, for instance, it's widely recognised that the illness is caused by dysautonomia, by dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. But with Amy, CFS and fibromyalgia, it's only we're only starting to come around to this view now in the wider medical community and and research community. So um really if you even go back to when CFS Unraveled was published and you looked around most of the websites it was considered a complete mystery. You know, whereas now People are recognizing more and more it's a neurological illness, uh, which is a little surprising because the World Health Organization actually classified chronic fatigue syndrome as a neurological illness, I think. Goodness, going maybe back as far as the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Um, And so if the problem is with how the brain is functioning um, or or how the brain is behaving, Uh, to create these really um, upsetting symptoms, you know, real physical symptoms. And the question is, well, how can we fix that? And the answer is neuroplasticity.
1: So how can, what are some specific ways in which neuroplasticity can occur? It doesn't just spontaneously happen, obviously.
0: Yeah, sure, that's, uh, that's a great question. Well, I guess the first thing is we need to probably have a look at What exactly is neuroplasticity uh, specifically? So it can occur in two ways. Um, It's either through growth. This is known as neurogenesis or structural neuroplasticity. Or it can be a functional change. So that's where the neurons in the brain learn to behave differently uh, or they connect differently, which is referred to as cortical remapping uh, or also as um, functional neuroplasticity. So those are the, um, the two main ways. And, and this was actually proposed a long time ago that this occurs. Um, I think it was uh, back in the late 1800s by a, a famous American psychologist. And, and that was the first time that we heard that this, this concept of neuroplasticity. So, yeah, your, your question was, so how does it occur? It doesn't just happen in its own right. Well, actually it actually does. It does happen in its own right. Um, because neuroplasticity is basically what occurs when we become ill. And it's it's just neuroplasticity working against us to create this maladaptive stress response. And uh, another example is chronic pain. Chronic pain is basically a, a maladaptive uh, reorganization of the nervous system and um and it actually ch- causes physical changes in the brain so it, it can actually uh cause a reduction in the in the gray matter in the brain globally um as well as in in some specific regions including the prefrontal cortex and the right thalamus, and those are interesting areas of the brain, mm-hmm. and, and, and they'll, they come up often when we're talking about recovery from this illness as well. So that's how neuroplasticity can occur when it's working sort of randomly and working against us, but with a more focused approach, we can also have positive neuroplasticity occurring, and that's through brain training or, or neural retraining. And that's basically uh, an application of focused exercises and training to create changes that we desire.
1: So, you know, clearly children, babies, infants, utilize neuroplasticity in their rapid learning experiences, right? Um, But when I was in learning psychology back in 30 years ago, (laughs) uh, (laughs) we were taught that adults had didn't have this ability. So can you talk mm. a little bit more about what we've learned in that realm?
0: Yeah, look, um, um, this a similar question came up in an interview I gave recently, actually. And, you know, so true what you're saying about children. I mean, uh, when I think about my own children, um, now, I never taught them how to speak German, right? My, my German is very rudimentary. But I remember when they were little, you know, uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, and I'd get them to try and s- say some German words. They'd just mimic it perfectly. Yeah. Like, you know, it was like really clear. And and then some years later, um, once they were in their teenage years, they'd try and say something in German and it'd be like, rah, 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 yeah? <laughs> yeah. You know, with the, with the Aussie accent uh, really thick and they just couldn't get their mouth to do it. So it's true. In the in the early years, we have a tremendous amount of plasticity. Um, In fact, I think it's we have a high level of plasticity. uh, Really, even until our early Mm twenties, and and people can learn multiple languages without any accents um, quite easily. Whereas after that, it becomes much more difficult to do this. And so, yes, doctors had basically and and medical science had thought there is no neuroplasticity in adults. And um, one uh, very notable scientist, often referred to as the father of neuroplasticity, uh, is Professor Michael Merzenich. And he really championed this idea that neuroplasticity occurs in adults. And he had research and findings that would show this, but it was such a… Uh, uh, there was so much resistance to this possibility that He'd have to fight he he'd use um, how do I say this politically correct <laughs> wording? <laughs> you know, he would find other words to describe the fact that there was neuroplasticity going on in in in, in, in adult brains, and uh, basically saying that there appears to be changes in <laughs> how the brain is functioning or something like <laughs> right, this. Right, right. Uh, because because whenever he said it, there was just yeah, there was a lot of resistance. So he really fought hard for this and. And you know the evidence kept mounting, but even with a lot of evidence, there was a lot of resistance. And medicine doesn't like change no. to its belief structure. Right. And um, but in the end, uh, amazing, amazing things happened. Um, you know, the, the, these understanding of cortical remapping even led to development of things like um, like cochlea implants. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and you know and- that I was an audiologist for about a decade, and. You know, in treating patients with hearing loss, whether it's with hearing aids or cochlear implants, either way, you have to have a firm understanding of neuroplasticity uh, in a mm. person who's developed hearing loss over a long period of time progressively. Their auditory cortex hasn't been exercised in some time, right? So when you send that signal in suddenly, that you, they need the time. To really learn, the brain has to relearn what to do with those messages. Otherwise, it it comes through as garbled.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, the, um, as you're saying that, it reminds me that there has been some studies that have been very interesting that have looked at the differences for when people are born blind or born deaf,
1: huh.
0: and the areas of the brain, for instance, that are um, uh, that are Used for visual processing. Uh, if someone is born blind, they 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 immediately get used for other stuff. Mm-hmm. So the brain just goes, well, you know, uh, I have got empty real estate here. I'm I'm using this, right, and it it uses it specifically for hearing.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a recruitment right? of, of sorts, right? Recruiting those neurons for another purpose. That's right. It's such a that's right, and that's why people get.
0: That's why people can get like super hearing, if you like.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Right. Uh, because they're actually using more of their brain to do the hearing. Right. Uh, in fact, I remember there was a, uh, uh, a young African American chap who who uh, was blind, but he'd go out in the road skateboarding, and he used echolocation like a bat.
1: Wow, that's incredible. So he'd
0: skateboard down the. I mean, think about skateboarding. You know how that yeah. is You see a pebble, <laughs> you're on your face, right? <laughs> yeah. And he would skateboard down the road, and he'd just go like this. Yeah. And from that, he would hear the echo and he'd know if there was a pole or a wall. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, I could kind of see in inverted commas with, with hearing. Right. But I mean, skateboarding has got some speed associated to it. There's that, a lot of confidence. <laughs> a lot of
1: risk. Yeah. Yeah. But that is that's a, a fine of example of neuroplasticity. That, that is mm. excellent. Um, yeah, you know, I, put- I had come across uh, an article that suggested that there are physical changes in brains between meditators and non-meditator, non-meditators. meditator non So is that an example of neuroplasticity in the brain?
0: Yeah, that's been suggested. But I think here you've really got to make sure that you stay scientifically valid in, in your uh, approach because correlation does not mean causation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think... Um, uh the study you're referring to um let me just have a look here just a moment i think that was done actually possibly in new zealand uh around 2009 mm-hmm. and um they basically found that there was um there was uh, i think greater volumes of gray matter in the hippocampal and and, and frontal volumes of the brain in long-term meditators so I think Harvard did a similar study right. back in 2005, and they also found that this, there was this correlation um, that they that these long-term meditators had more, more gray matter in the insula and the sensory regions, like the auditory and sensory cortex. But like we said, I mean, you, you could say, you know, correlation is not causation. Mm-hmm. So maybe people had these differences in their brains, and maybe that's why they'd like to meditate. Right. Um, So, what was more interesting is that, um, uh, Harvard then did a follow-up study some years later. Uh, I don't remember exactly when, um, maybe 2011 or something like this. And they, um, they basically took a whole bunch of people who hadn't meditated and then they put them, put part of the group through an eight-week meditation training course. And what they found is that Uh, they did MRIs before and after and obviously the people who didn't meditate there was no change and the people who did meditate they actually found that there were uh, thickening in the grey matter in in four areas in the brain and one of those areas actually included the pons which I found particularly interesting because the pons actually is in the brain stem of the brain and it actually regulates a lot of the autonomic functions Um, so from the point of view of MECFS and fibromyalgia and POTS, um, that is very interesting. But what's perhaps even more interesting is that they actually found that there was, uh, a, instead of a growth, they also found there was a shrinkage of the, uh, amygdala.
1: Mm.
0: Now, the amygdala is the part that it's like your, your memory. Uh, but memory for for your fight or flight response, mm. so again um this was very interesting in the context of a maladaptive stress response uh, that we see in this group of illnesses, and of course, that's not to suggest that meditating is going to cure you from these illnesses, no. right. but it is one of the reasons why meditation can help you benefit, and we might talk a little bit. More about that in more detail shortly.
1: Good, excellent. Yeah, that's a very intriguing topic to me. That that mm. that inner relationship between the meditation and the brain itself, the the, the functionality of the brain, uh, and and then how that plays into recovery.
0: I mean, it was really quite a quite uh, a lot of buzz around the world this finding because. Because people often think, oh, meditation, yeah, that's sort of uh, like what the hippies do, or they might think it's spiritual, or they might have all kinds of thoughts about it. They, might, yeah, they think it's good for relaxing and stress. But when we actually say, H- hang on a sec, you are physically changing your brain, growing parts, shrinking parts, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just a, a, a functional thing, it's actually ch- physically changing it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, to physically change the brain, is that's, that's a huge It
1: is huge. So, Dan, does neuroplasticity, utilizing neuroplasticity in the recovery process, does that imply that the illness is psychological in nature? It it doesn't. Can you talk about that for a minute?
0: Yeah. Look, um, it gets a little bit confusing here, I think, because. Because psychological things certainly can play into the pathophysiology of this illness. Mm-hmm. Um, most people find if they get stressed or if they get down or something like that, they, their symptoms can worsen. Sure. But this is too much uh, of a separation between this whole discussion about psychology or the mental side of things or, and the physical side of things. Uh, this is all it's all one thing, right. because the nervous system doesn't differentiate between what goes on in your mind and what goes on in your body. I mean, it's central. It's called central nervous system, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's not psychological. And then when people talk about, often they use um, psychological steps to uh, to try and create neuroplastic uh, neuroplasticity or or to create changes. And so then people think, oh, it's psychological, right? Right. right. But that's not the case at all. And, and like that's why I always refer to uh, the whole example where people are had a stroke and they can't walk or they can't talk. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, you, no one ever says, oh, stroke is oh, it's psychological. Right. The guy was just thinking about talking, right? Right? But you have to think about talking. Mm-hmm. You have to try to talk, right? And and part of it, of course, is then the movement of the mouth or the legs or or, or whatever. And so I think that's easier, right? But you can't move your autonomic nervous system. That's not obvious. Right. Right? And and, and so therefore because because there's not this obvious physical uh 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 part involved in, in some of the training that people do. Uh, certainly we talk about that in ANSB wire, mm-hmm. but, but in and most brain training probably doesn't have that. Uh, outside of, uh, physical rehabilitation right. work, um, I think people get this idea of it being psychological and, and we're really talking about functional changes in the brain. You know, both physical changes and functional changes. Uh, and once these changes occur, there's a change in function of the brain and then we don't worry about it anymore. Right. So, let me ask you, do you do the brain training exercises that I taught you in the program? Do you still do them every day to stay well? Oh, no. (laughs) No. Gosh, no. Uh No.
1: I mean, occasionally, if an unhelpful thought pops up as they do in life in all people, I know what to do with it now. I have the experience to deal with it, but um, no, on a daily basis, no, not at all.
0: But see, now, I would say that is psychological. So the very training processes that you use to create a physiological, neurological change to affect neuroplasticity, yes. now you might use that for a psychological benefit. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Right? Yes.
0: So now you can say, "Oh, that process, or, or that aspect of that process, oh yeah, that's psychological," because actually, maybe that is mm-hmm. right. Yeah. But when we're doing the recovery, uh, that's not the that's not the purpose. That's not what this is all about, uh, and and that's why it's. Why recovery has so many different aspects to it, right? right? Because we we're trying to make a whole change to how the nervous system is stimulated, uh, dare say assaulted.
1: Yes, yes, good word.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thanks for asking that question. I think that's a really important point and a real big misconception uh, in in the uh, CFS Fibro Plus community.
1: Yeah, I do too, and I think that was an excellent clarification on your part. Um, So, I have collected some questions from people who contact me because of my recovery, and and so I'd like to ask you a couple that are related to this topic of neuroplasticity. Um, The first one is that, you know, people with ME-CFS, fibromyalgia, POTS, have a lot of limitations. Learning new things obviously contributes to our neural flexibility, Um, so... Given that this community of people with these chronic illnesses can't do this physical activity as much as others, uh, because they end up with PEM, post-exertional malaise, we're all we both of us are quite familiar with that. Um, it 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 exacerbates the condition. So, would, can you comment on this a little bit?
0: You know, Claudia, um, I mean, it's. Really, always about the details, and, and sometimes the distinctions between what can be helpful and what can be unhelpful can be very, very small.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: And so uh, I'm going to comment on this a little bit because it's easy for people to hear some of these things, draw conclusions from them, and do things that can actually be very unhelpful. Mm-hmm. I guess the first thing is, I mean, yeah, physical movement uh, is integral. The brain training that we have in the program also talks about uh, how we engage with our physical body. And it shouldn't be a surprise because when you look at, um, well, we've known about neuroplasticity for a long time because we've seen like stroke victims recover or people who've had certain accidents, right? Where, where the part of the brain is damaged. And, and when they do that, they don't just sit in a chair with a blanket over their legs going, okay, let me start walking in my mind, Mm -hmm. right? They, they do the walking in the mind in the sense that they say, you know, leg, move, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then the physio will actually move the leg for them. Right. So the brain then gets two inputs. It gets the input from your mind saying move, and it gets the input from the body where it is moving. right? And this, is, this can then, um, with appropriate focus, and we'll talk about that shortly, uh, it shortly, cause these changes in the brain so that we can start to make these connections again. So, we have a lot of problems when we have this illness, right? right. Um, with the brain. Right. Like with focus.
1: You know, brain Definitely. fog. Yeah.
0: Um, difficulty hearing, you know, with stimulation, right? Um, all these kind of things. And, and with all of these things in, in play, um, it can be easy to say, oh, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to get my brain to start focusing. I'm going to do puzzles and I'm going to, you know, play games and I'm going to, you know, they have like a brain training uh, things on the internet where you can try and make your brain better and stronger. But we've got to understand you, you, you're not like a stroke victim.
1: Right.
0: You haven't had the part of your brain die and need to remap your brain or something like this. You have a dysfunction, and uh, the reasons why we have things like um, brain fog is is complex, and uh, it's not necessarily because you can't do it, but because your brain and you because you've depleted,
1: right,
0: right. Your brain is not it's not in a, in a state where it can do this di- this work, and so pushing your brain can actually be unhelpful.
1: So. It- Then are you saying that you don't think that the illness limits the ability to affect uh, the neuroplasticity in a positive way?
0: Well, on the contrary, I I do think that. Okay. But I think we can narrow the reasons for this in in more detail.
1: Okay. How how, So can you explain that?
0: Well, uh, we have to probably understand a little bit more about how and when neuroplasticity occurs um, and how that works. So let me start off by saying, you know, I'm I'm not a neuroscientist. Yeah. Right. In fact, I'm not even a medical doctor. Alright. My, my science background is in a completely different discipline in physics. Uh, you know, I used to play with lasers and optics and electronics. So I'm not going to claim to be like a world authority in neuroplasticity or neuroscience, but I do have a lot of experience specifically with these syndromes and practical experience. And obviously, it was the theory of the book that first led to this body of experience that I now have. So, I will share some of my thoughts, and I will try and bring them in as best as I understand them, uh, and and in relation to specifically this group of illness. So, let's let's talk about exactly how this happens in the brain. The first thing I would suggest that that actually switches on in the brain in order for us to start. Neuroplasticity uh, might surprise people a little bit, especially the recovery community that focuses on neuroplasticity, right? Mm-hmm. Because what we always do is we focus on trying to calm ourselves, meditation, all these type of things, right? But the thing that actually switches neuroplasticity on is actually adrenaline, or specifically, I should say, noradrenaline in the brain, and that noradrenaline actually brings the brain to a state of focus, and this is very very important, right? Focus. So remember that. Then there's a second neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. Now this is a very important part of the ANS. Acetylcholine. It's actually um, the primary neurotransmitter of the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, I think it's actually um, a result. Uh, like an output of the parasympathetic nervous system, um, so it actually is a is a neuromodulator. It it, pr- it promotes REM sleep.
1: Okay,
0: but it's also used in the sympathetic nervous system, right? Uh, and and the, the, obviously, the parasympathetic and sympathetic are the two main areas uh, of the autonomic nervous system that we tend to speak about. There's a third third part that no one seems to care yeah, about. Yeah, no right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, So what happens is that these two uh, neurotransmitters, they, um, they come together and they tag those specific brain areas that we're engaging for change. But my understanding is that the change doesn't actually happen then. So it only gets tagged, it doesn't actually create change at that moment. The actual change to the brain and how it function happens subsequently when we're sleeping.
1: Mm.
0: Now anyone who's got issues, uh, anyone who has this illness will understand that, that there are some difficulties around sleep. <laughs> yeah. So I think we can already see that the first issue that we might have when creating positive neuroplasticity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the other issue is also we have to be able to have these neurotransmitters in, in and be able to produce these neurotransmitters adequately. Um. And, and I think that there are, there are some issues around that, uh, which may be contributing partially to the brain fog Mm -hmm. side of things. Mm -hmm. So we've got to make sure we've got adequate nutrition and, and, and metabolic processes functioning in order to create that. And especially, uh, we need to have uh, the essential fatty acids and the amino acids for the production of these neurotransmitters and hormones. Um, so. That's what we need, and we need to be able to produce a focus, right? Mm-hmm. So remember, we have the noradrenaline to create the focus, right? But again, focus is a real difficulty, first with again with brain fog, right. right? Yeah, absolutely. So we need need to focus. We need to sleep, and and that's basically how how neuroplasticity occurs and why we might have some difficulty with it.
1: So um what what you just said made me realize that you're kind of backing out from from the brain retraining which comes later in your program. You kind of took steps back because you can't start there. You've got to back up and start. You have to mm-hmm. have the sleep in place. You have to have done some of the meditation, right? You've got to have the nutrition in place, the hormones in mm-hmm. place. So it's kind of led me back to the beginning of your program and how you sequenced mm-hmm. it so brilliantly, and that you've got to do it step by step in order to build. It's like building blocks. You're setting the stage for the neuroplasticity, basically.
0: That's you know that, that that's right. And and look, obviously we don't know exactly. You know, I wouldn't be saying, hey, if you don't change your diet, you're not going to be able to affect neuroplasticity. You know. Right. But let's let's let, let's make it easy. Let's what? let's make it as. Let's support our brain mm-hmm. and our body as much as we can mm-hmm. to, to be functioning, to, to be able to recover. And, and the meditation and the way we do the meditation mm-hmm. um, is specifically designed to allow you to engage in the brain training exercises. Um, so both from a, uh, I mean, we can see that there is, uh, you know, physiological or, or physical Neural, you know brain changes that are involved that should support our recovery right like from that study i mentioned earlier uh, from from harvard but but at the same point it's actually the the skills that we learn from the brain training of meditation that we can then transfer to the actual brain training um so meditation on its own, I think, is really unlikely to, to get anyone to recover from this illness. Well, I know fact, that
1: because I was a meditator for many years before right. I started your program, and nothing changed. So
0: that's yeah. right. But but it's interesting to see that when you look at some of the uh, the fast recoveries, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yours was, I think, what we would say an atypically fast recovery. You know, ninety days. You know, and and, and there have been other people like this. You know, they're like housebound for thirty years, and then ninety days later, they're hiking in the mountains. And you're kind of like, really? Yeah. You know, it seems a bit unlikely, doesn't it? But when you actually look at the history, you'll find that they actually have been meditating a long time. So when they they almost kind of skipped over part of the program and went straight into the the, the neural training portion, and were able to do it very effectively. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned, like I, I guess earlier, you know, about the different activities you we were doing. I think. You know, they have multiple benefits. Uh, I, you know, one of the things we really need to look at in our recovery is morale. Mm, for sure. And like when you were doing these things like painting or um, some Tai Chi, you know, you know it, it's a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, when we're just wasting our lives, that's how it feels right. Right? for oh, many of us. Oh, not, yeah. not all of us. It felt like that for me.
1: <laughs> it definitely felt that way for me.
0: You know, then it's 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 very downtrodden, and and all of this this even this recovery work it takes effort. It's mm-hmm. it's not easy when you're unwell. So it's there for our morale, but it's a little bit more than that. I think it's actually neurologically important for neuroplasticity to occur.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And probably the best way to explain that is because there's really a third neurotransmitter at work, and that neurotransmitter is dopamine. So many people have heard dopamine. It's it's like the reward
1: mm-hmm.
0: neurotransmitter. That's how often it's yeah. how how it's uh, described. But but dopamine actually is involved in a whole range of of functions, uh, including autonomic function. Mm-hmm. So you know, regulating your heart rate, your kidneys, uh, as well as attention, mm-hmm. pain processing, right? And and so what happens is you do some positive things it's like feedback to the brain that you're on the right track and this is again why I will talk about in in the program about building recovery momentum you know why we want to have some positive experiences mm-hmm. um because you're doing something and it's working of course you're going to be more motivated to keep going right
1: yeah definitely
0: as so that's sort of from the just the logical common sense Way of looking at it, but neurologically, what dopamine does—dopamine do- actually acts as an, as I understand it, as a uh, like a down-regulating force for for noradrenaline, right? So if you need neu—you neuropl- see, noradrenaline doesn't down-regulate itself.
1: Right. Okay.
0: So it's like out of control. That's probably why people feel, feel so wired.
1: Right.
0: You know, tired and wired. Wired and wired. Yeah, um, for sure. Most hormones will actually downregulate, so the brain or and and the body will go, "Hey, this hormone is like we've pumped out too much of this." Mm-hmm. It sees that, right, and it says, "Okay, I've got to reduce the amount of this hormone." Mm-hmm. This doesn't happen with noradrenaline. and so like, uh, and, and then what's it going to lead to? That's going to lead to like a burnout, if you like. In in, uh, and there's only so much noradrenaline. right? <laughs> like you, you can deal with, right? Yeah. And, and so in order to sustain your focused effort, dopamine will actually bring that adrenaline down uh, and it will balance this to allow you to have sustained focus. So no, dopamine is, is the third, I'd say the third important uh, neurotransmitter that really allows this, this process of neuroplasticity uh, to be sustained.
1: So by yeah. engaging in something that we find joyful, we can uh, allow the body to create that dopamine response to do what you're explaining.
0: I think uh, I think so, absolutely, uh, and and you know, like I think it creates at least the environment for that to happen. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, ultimately, I think. What we really want is that strong reward, you know. Like I'm doing the brain training, and I'm getting better because now you've got that connection, right? And the dopamine hits right, connected to that process. And I think that that is that that, that is very very powerful. And this is why sometimes you see this. You know how we spiral down over the years with this illness. Yeah. This is how why sometimes people spiral up, right? So once they start and they get some recovery momentum. Sometimes it's a bit tricky for them to get started. Right. Uh, in my experience, many people, okay. there's things that stop them sort of getting going. Mm-hmm. But once we get going and we see it's working, it, it kind of snowballs. It's a momentum.
1: Yeah. I remember that feeling.
0: It's a great feeling.
1: It, yeah. And I love that you said snowballs because that, that was the vision I had exactly was when you're making a snowman and you start with the yes. small ball of snow, right, and you roll it down and as you roll it and roll it it just becomes bigger and bigger and that was the feeling I had was that momentum.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh abs- absolutely. And um Yeah, so I think we need to take sometimes a little bit of a of a wider approach with, with our whole neuroplasticity focus. Yeah. You know, um it's it's not just about the actual brain training, it's about the environment that we create. Uh and it's also about the physical side of things, mm-hmm. you know, which we speak about quite a lot in the body. I think a lot of brain training tends to be very much just mind and psychologically focused mm-hmm. uh, and that's fine. I'm not saying that obviously that the illness is psychological or anything, but um, it, it's just a, a, a method or an opportunity to create change in the brain. Right. Um, but I think we should not ignore the other opportunities to foster neuroplasticity.
1: Um, So will you explain a little bit about how ANS dysfunction can lead to central sensitization in ME-CFS, POTS, and fibromyalgia Mm. through neuroplasticity, uh, neuronal responses, that that sort of thing?
0: Look, um, I actually like the way you asked the question. Uh, um, In ME-CFS, fibromyalgia, POTS, multiple chemical sensitivities, you can add that. Yeah um it's it's i'm saying this is all one illness we tend to when people talk about central sensitization in this illness community uh, people always think of pain right but actually um central sensitization is is really not just for, for pain it's about all uh nociception right it's about all um uh, uh, sensing an encoding of, of stimuli that could potentially be uh, damaging or noxious, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That's why we see multiple chemical sensitivities. Right. Right. So, multiple chemical sensitivity is central sensitization, in my view, just as much as that. Light sensitivity. Right. Um, um. Sound. You know, yeah, but even physical, you know, the t- allodynia, oh, mm-hmm. pain, But even IBS, Mm -hmm. right? IBS, oh yeah. uh, The sensations of your of your gut, right? And it causes this feedback, Mm, migraines. Yeah, often looked at being triggered to hormonal changes.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But is it the hormonal changes, or is it the way your body responds to those hormonal changes? Right. right? Because when they've looked at that specifically, and looked at, um, uh you know ladies who have that change during the month and and the different profiles they actually it, it's not there's not as much correlation as you'd think
1: mm-hmm. right
0: mm-hmm. um so some some people don't have these abnormal hormone profiles and still get the migraines and right. some people have them mm-hmm. uh and and so or, or some people have them and they don't get migraines right so there isn't this full correlation, and and I guess what I'm saying is that the issue isn't so much the hormone change; it's when the hormone change occurs, um, because obviously everyone has some hormone change every lady over the, the period of the month. Yeah. Then. Then it's how the brain reacts to that hormonal change.
1: Right. So somehow the body is perceiving it that as a threat. Some somehow this this, this is not right. We must do something about this.
0: Absolutely, and and. It, Look, uh, I'm happy to admit this mistake, if you can want to call it that. Um, in ANS Rewire, you know, I, I built this all on the theory that I had postulated. You know, uh, there wasn't really research to, because no one was really researching CFS and sensor yeah. in this way and, and made these connections, you know, just, just born out of my book CFS Unraveled and my experience, uh, of, of learning about, uh, um, how we can change our nervous system. Mm-hmm. And so I create these processes and these methods to change um, how we how we uh, uh, engage with life and our mind and our body to create this neuroplasticity. But then there was this section about pain, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so pain is well studied. Okay. It's not the, the the research isn't well utilized right. clinically, but there's which, a lot of it. Which is yeah, but it's good research, yep. you know. Like it's 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 actually really good research, and it's very poignant research. And I still don't understand how this is not being applied more. You know, when you you know you have chronic pain, go see a pain psychologist, mm-hmm. seek to fix it as opposed to manage it. They always say manage it. Yeah, you know why manage it? Mm-hmm. Seek to fix it. Right, right? but. It, this is not—it's um, it,
1: not—I
0: don't know—politically correct or whatever you want to call it—to right. to to suggest this, you know, um, which I think is a real shortcoming because a lot of people with chronic pain of all kinds, you know, oh, back pain and yeah. fibromyalgia, and, and there's many different types of pain. So uh, I think people could benefit a lot more. Oh yeah. But but um, what I then did is I then brought the lessons and research into the program. That talked about pain and the specific things we know that affect pain perception and how we then basically educating how we need to change these different factors mm-hmm. uh, and and it was only after the whole program was done. It's exactly the same thing as what I'm saying with all the other stuff <laughs> in the <Right>? program. <laughs> it is. It's the same process. It's the same thing. And like, what? Why am I? You know, I kind of made it like it's this other thing, this separate thing, and it's 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 actually all the same. Yeah. Um, which was um yeah. Sometimes we don't see things when we yeah. do doing in them. you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. But for me it was exciting to be able to actually share parts and program that were heavily based on established research as opposed to my own work. Right. And so I brought that all in and then afterwards I looked in and go, Well it's it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing as what I'm already saying.
1: Yeah.
0: Um uh, so Yeah, Um, but look, I I digress. Your your question was, how does central sensitization occur? And it gets very... This is a a complicated area of science, like I said. I'm not a a neuroscientist. Um, But I think it was the... I think it was actually an Australian university, the University of Adelaide. They, They actually wrote a hypothesis, and in that hypothesis, they said that... Basically, they think that is the neuropeptide substance P. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you probably heard of that uh, having been in the fiber community for a long time because we know that's often elevated mm-hmm. in the cerebral spinal fluid of people with fibromyalgia. Uh, and this neuropeptide uh, substance P and its receptor, uh, which is, uh, uh, excuse me if I get this not right, NK1R or something like this. Uh, this receptor, um, basically that these two are involved in creating this this process of central sensitization. So they basically describe the biological basis uh, with how this this neuropeptide and its receptor can cause this process of central sensitization. Um, And we can Really, sort of get into the the, the nitty gritty details of how all of this works and the biochemical way this this happens. But sometimes I think it's it's easier just to describe this in, in a in a more logical way. And and basically, what they're saying is that d- this neuropeptide is is high when the body is under uh, duress, right. and and like there's basically an unresolved stressor. Um, and anyone's got this illness knows that this—it's very not so psychologically, but physically. You know, there's so much going on in the body that's not working. This is all interpreted by the by the body as a stressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, let alone the psychological ramifications, right? Right. Yeah. And and this stress doesn't resolve, and this unresolved stress—they basically describe how this mechanism leads to, uh, or, or propose it's a hypothesis right. of how this leads to. Uh, this this maladaptive stress response, which is really what we're talking about uh, with this illness.
1: And so in this maladaptive stress response, you begin with a certain threshold where you're, you have an input signal and the body will respond to it. Say you have an injury or an insult to the body and you sense that as pain, right, at, at a specific level. But over time with central sensitization... If I'm understanding this properly, that threshold gets lower and lower, so it takes less and less input for that same response to occur. Correct?
0: Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Um, and uh, I mean, look at uh, Aladdinia. You know, someone. Yeah. I remember this. You know, like I remember just the sheets touching me in the bed on my arm, and it was like in my brain was just like a fireworks. Right. And I was like, "This is ridiculous, right?" Yeah,
1: it's excruciating. You can't, yeah, yeah, you can't tolerate it.
0: It it makes no sense, Mm -hmm. right? It's like multiple chemical sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you're 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 like fifty meters or hundred meters away from the petrol station. Mm -hmm. The wind turns, you get a whiff, and you like you kind of panic because you know what what this means. You're going to get ill, and and then you get sick. But I mean, like. It's your body's response. Yeah. I mean, there's not enough toxins in that little whiff of smell to to make your body ill.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but it is making your body ill because your body is doing that, and and it's this 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 unreasonable reaction. And you know, the awful thing is that people are often not believed. Like, it's just it's like you're making it up, or you're hypochondriac, or you're, it's psychological.
1: Right.
0: I mean, it's not psychological. No. Um. What's psychological about it? I mean, you get physically really sick. Right. And there is this, this stimulus which shouldn't make you sick. I mean, it's all nice and good to say, well, that can't make you sick. But it is making you sick. I, <laughs> I, mean, I like-
1: remember whenever I would go to my mother's house, she always had those plug-in room, uh, the smells would come out of them, yeah. right? She would unplug all of them when I came over so that, Oh, I wouldn't sense. have to yeah because she knew that yeah. I would end up with a migraine every time.
0: So look I mean um um I hope that sort of helps people understand a little bit more about neuroplasticity um why it's important. Um, it's yeah. it's really central to to recovery. If we want the brain to function different, mm-hmm. we have to create neuroplasticity. Yes. And so understanding how that works uh I think it's, it's, really key. And, and I guess my, 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 closing message, unless you have other questions, would be, um, that focus is essential.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Focus is probably the most important element of, of neuroplasticity. In fact, uh, a great example of this is a post-traumatic stress syndrome which, in my view, is along the same spectrum of this illness, okay. except it's more psychological mediated. You know, people get it from a psychological event, right. mm-hmm. and then they have psychological symptoms, whereas that may not be the case at all for fibromyalgia and CFS. Right. I mean, it can be in some cases, but in many cases it's not. Right. So so because it's, it's primarily a psychological phenomenon, people think it's a different illness, but it's actually the same mechanism in the brain. And... And the thing about it is, well, what happens? Um, well, when you have a, a traumatic event, there's a massive amount of stress response mm-hmm. and a massive amount of focus of what's happening.
1: Right.
0: Right? I mean, a lion comes in and starts shredding up all your mates around the campsite, you're not going to be going, oh, so. Wait, wait what's that app? Did, excuse me, did you hear about that app from our phone? No, you really want to be focused. Mm-hmm. Super focused, yeah. <laughs> and, and the adrenaline is really high.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and so boom, neuroplasticity occurs. And people make this connection between a stimulus and and this this stress response. Right. Um So that's neuroplasticity working against us, but we can make it work for us. Okay. In the same way.
1: And we know that uh, the limitations that we have with these illnesses won't um, keep us from affecting neuroplasticity positively. And we know that age won't keep us from doing so. So,
0: Mm. um, good. Yeah, this is a a question I I was asked again recently. You know, is age or how long you're sick? Or if you have a particular expression uh, of the illness or uh, they had all kinds of questions along this Mm -hmm. Um these uh I can put a link in underneath to that interview um cover some of the same topics as here, but yeah, look my experience i've seen all people recover from all kind with all of these things i've seen people who are older recover i've seen people who have been ill for longer um i, I might have uh no not, not I might have I would have when I started this when I did my initial research, I wrote the book, I would have said yeah look it's much harder for someone to recover when they've been ill for longer because you know those neurons are it's more ingrained it's mm-hmm. like a super highway for the brain to function that way and therefore it'll be harder and take longer uh logically uh, um there's a real basis for making that argument mm-hmm. um and and maybe there is research to back that up i i i I'm not really sure to be honest. Um, but from my experience, the, my experience does not support those views that I used to have because my experience has shown that I've seen people who've been you know, really ill for a long time, mm-hmm. people who've been uh, um, in their 70s uh, and 80s. Wow. Um, uh, I've seen uh, these people recover. I've seen also people who've been very severely ill. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen people uh, who, with with all situations. So I I don't think it's, um. I I don't think we should ever limit anyone's, uh, uh hope
1: mm-hmm. I wish uh,
0: for for recovery. Uh, can there be things that might make it harder? Yes. Can there be things that are unhelpful? Absolutely. Does everybody have a quick and easy recover recovery? <laughs> I wish. Yeah, I wish right? too. Um. Is it always obvious what's wrong? No, it's not. It's not always obvious what, what, what's going on. Um, because, because also psychological things can impact us with this illness. Sometimes we don't even know what, that they're there or what's going on.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Right.
0: Um, and similarly, sometimes physiological things that are perhaps not recognized. Um, these can all trigger the nervous system. So uh, that's why, that's why I think in order to affect positive neuroplasticity, a multilateral approach makes more sense.
1: That's fabulous. And yeah.
0: Yeah. Because if we change the way our bodies is operating, if we remove the distractions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Like if 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 you've got an out of control candida infections and and your guts are rumbling and all of this, well, there's some of your focus gone straight away, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's some of your focus gone straight away. Yeah. So. If we can do whatever we can to help the body recover and heal, then our ability to focus to affect positive neuroplasticity, in my view, is, is, is enhanced.
1: Brilliant. Mm. This has been really a full discussion, I think, on a very interesting topic to me. So thank you. Um, what, where, where would you send people at this point if they're interested in learning more?
0: Look, um. Um, it depends what they want to learn about. I, I, uh, I think one of the great places to start is actually the recovery interviews. And I know that might sound a little bit unexpected, but if you the more you understand, and obviously the, especially people who are in the ANS Rewire program, I think my hope is always that once people go through that education, when they listen to the recovery interviews with people who are not in the program. You know, people who recovered their own way. I love those stories. They're my favorite, yeah. right? People who found their own way to recover. Yeah. When you actually listen really carefully, now that with that new knowledge, mm-hmm. and you listen, you will see that these people actually engaged in what you would call brain training exercises. Right. All right? They changed how they related to the pain, the meaning of the pain, the way they're focused on things. Right, and I, I I I tend to ask these questions because uh, I understand how the dynamics of the illness works. Right. Uh, sometimes the interv- interviewee doesn't think that they're very important. Right. 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 Because they may find that they've, they they attribute their recovery to something else. Mm. But when you actually listen, you, you you will see that. So that's a great place to start. Obviously, people interested in the analyst program can have a look at the uh, introductory uh, lessons, and. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think that that that's probably a good starting point.
1: Great, thank you so much for all of this yeah. information. It's very valuable.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you for your excellent questions, and uh, your own personal uh, uh, input and experience uh, with uh, with neuroplasticity. I guess you studied it all those years as an audiologist and suddenly you found that it had a much better application for you personally
1: (laughs) funny how life is isn't it
0: (laughs) absolutely well thanks again claudia and uh i look forward to catching up with you at at a future podcast
1: same here dan thanks
0: thanks for tuning into this episode of the podcast we hope you felt supported by it if you have any questions feel free to reach out to us via cfsunravel.com and make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it and you can leave a comment and a 4 or 5 star review if you feel so inclined if you want to make sure you get your free copy of Discover Hope and get notified about all new recovery resources and interviews including recovery interviews subscribe to us via the website Check out some of our other podcasts. I hope you'll join us again soon.